Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 600 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, um, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a page of alternative ways if you don't feel like dealing with PayPal. My guests today are Eben Alexander, MD, and Karen Newell. Many of you will have heard of Eben. He was an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years who had a profound near-death experience resulting in his writing a book called Proof of Heaven, which became a New York Times number one bestseller for something like 40 weeks. I'll let him give a bit more of his background himself rather than me just read a bio. His partner, Karen Newell, is an author and specialist in personal development with a diverse body of work that rests upon the foundation of heart-centered consciousness. As an innovator in the emerging field of brainwave and entrainment audio meditation, Karen empowers others in their journeys of self-discovery by demonstrating how to connect to inner guidance, achieve inspiration, improve wellness, and develop intuition. She is the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics and co-author with Eben of Living in a Mindful Universe, which I read cover to cover this week and really enjoyed. So welcome to both of you. Good to have you here. Rick, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having us on. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. I tried one of those audio entrainment things this week, a couple of days. There's one I downloaded from your website, and I always take a rest or a nap before I meditate in the afternoon, and so I listened to that during my, my rest, and it was nice. It was restful. <laughs> good. Very good. Which, one did, you, which one did you listen it's to? It's an ohm thing, and then it, towards the end there's oh. some ocean waves and some bells and... Yeah, it's yeah. the one that's easy right. to download off your website. Yeah, that's our free download. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I did. Just to give people a heads up of what we're going to talk about, we'll certainly cover Eben's near-death experience um, because we can't presume that everyone listening to this has heard about it, although millions of people have. We're going to talk about near-death experiences in general. We're going to talk about consciousness, science, and medicine, the themes of this book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we may talk about reincarnation, suicide, life challenges, free will, death, fear, love, <laughs> and wherever else the conversation takes us. I didn't take any notes while reading your book because note-taking would have slowed me down and I really wanted to read the whole thing. And also I had a, I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to wing it and just come up with all the important things that we want to talk we about. Will. Maybe it would be good to start with telling about your NDE, even though half the audience will already have heard about it, but it wouldn't hurt to refresh their memories. Right. I can give you a, a short version of that. Nowadays, the story of my NDE comes with some additional backstory, official objective information, because in fact, you know, I went through my medical records, talked with my doctors, portrayed my case as best I could in the book Proof of Heaven. But since then, there was a team of physicians who were not involved in my care, who studied my medical records and actually spent about two years in writing up a case report that was published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in September 2018. And that case report 
does a lot to take my story to the next level because they were as amazed as I was that I had such a recovery. That's the part that any physician who reviews my case objectively is going to be shocked by is the depth and severity of my meningoencephalitis involving all eight lobes in my brain and then having a full recovery. That part is really kind of beyond any kind of Western medical explanation. So most of what I'm going to tell you completely violates what modern neuroscience says is possible, given their understanding of the brain-mind connection. And that's one of the reasons why my story, I think, uh, has so much value to the scientific community in trying to make sense of all this. But there are other NDEs where you have miraculous healing, just like in my case. So for the world at large, that's a valuable part to study. Briefly, I'd like to share with you what I went through. When all this happened to me at age 54 back in 2008, uh, I thought I had an understanding of brain-mind consciousness. I'd spent more than uh, 20, 25 years as an academic neurosurgeon. But I came to realize I was completely wrong, that our models of physicalism and the brain-creating consciousness are completely false. So the journey itself, uh, important to point out, atypical of NDEs, mine involved complete amnesia for my life. I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life, none of the life events. And in fact, when I came back from the coma on day seven, I didn't even recognize my mother, sons, etc. So my brain was really fried by the event. It's the recovery over two months after that that is so shocking. So what was it that I knew when I woke up in that ICU bed? All I knew was where I'd just been, this extraordinary journey. It started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course, unresponsive kind of subterranean realm. That went on for a very long time. And again, it was in a setting where I had no memories of Earth or humanity or a life of Evan Alexander. It was an empty slate, which I think was very important for some of the lessons I was to learn. Turns out I was rescued from that um, earthworm I view by basically a light portal that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And it opened up into a rich, ultra-real gateway valley. Hang on a second. Um, So when you say it was an earthworm's eye view in a subterranean realm... Can you be a bit more descriptive? I mean, what was it, just dark and murky? Yeah, it was murky. It was like being in dirty jello. I had no awareness of any kind of body image whatsoever, but I did have awareness of existing. And what I witnessed in that earthworm eye view was very kind of a dark uh, realm. There were smells. I could feel things, but I had no body at all at any point in this journey. That earthworm eye view, you know, for a long time, I thought it was the best consciousness my brain could muster while it was soaking in pus. But I've come to realize that level is much more commonly encountered. But just to kind of briefly kind of complete the summary, that Gateway Valley, uh, it was rich with Earth-like features. It was much more real than this world. That's the thing that's so surprising to people is that the ultra-reality of these events. They're much more detailed, vivacious, alive, and, and memorable than most of the events of our and life. by Gateway and Valley, you mean the, the beautiful place that you went to after coming exactly. out of the earthworm. <laughs> exactly. The Gateway Valley was, that's kind of the realm where our, we reunite with our higher soul, with souls of departed loved ones, go through life reviews, all the stuff that involves a kind of ready reference to an earthly existence would be in, in that Gateway Valley region. And yet that is not the ultimate destination. Many things I witnessed there and described in Proof of Heaven, the beautiful, lush uh, greenery around me, the plant life, the thousands of souls dancing, uh, lots of joy and merriment. I remember children playing, dogs jumping. Those souls I remember labeling in my writings early on when I came back to this world as souls between lives. 
It turns out I had a beautiful guardian angel on, on that butterfly wing that I was riding on through this whole adventure. That guardian angel gave me a telepathic message, very empathic and emotional of love, of comfort, of oneness, of belonging. And that particular guardian angel was very important in the story proof of heaven. And she realized later her importance in showing me the reality of the journey. But that level was only kind of a stepping stone to deeper levels. And I remember seeing all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, all of that spiritual realm and what I call deep time, a completely higher-order causality of kind of transformation of consciousness, all of that collapsing down until I reached what I call the core, this infinite inky blackness but filled to overflowing with the uh, healing love of that God force at the core of all creation. And, and in fact, my memory of that, Quorum was one of Aum, of that incredible, rich resonance throughout eternity and infinity of that Aum sound. That's what I called that deity when I came back to this world. To me, the word God was too puny, a little human word with a lot of baggage to it. Didn't remotely come into the uh, kind of realm of that incredibly loving uh, sense of that God force at the core realm. And then what would happen is I was... Uh, uh, would cycle. I would be taught many things at all of these levels, but I would spontaneously fall back down to that earthworm eye view. And that was a, a big mystery. But I learned early on that by remembering the musical notes of the melody, I could conjure up that portal that led me up from the earthworm's eye view into the gateway valley. And I would always encounter that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing and many other lessons that would occur in that setting and that uh, gateway valley. But then I would ascend through the musical portal of those angelic choirs above in that gateway valley that were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through me and reveal the profound majesty of this uh, incredible loving force of God. And then use that portal yet again to ascend to the core realm. And I went through those levels multiple times. I was always told entering the core, you're not here to stay, you'll be going back. We're teaching many things. But there finally came a time when trying to conjure up the musical notes of the melody to usher me out of the earth ones I view didn't work again. And to say I was sad at that moment would be a vast understatement, but I also knew I could trust in the universe because the deep message of that loving guardian angel was always, every time I passed through, you were deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are cared for. That's how it all transpired at the very end of the journey. There was a phase where I was witness to thousands of beings going off in, in circles around me, off into the misty distance, uh, many with heads uh, bowed and with their arms up like that, this murmuring energy coming from them. And when I came back to this world, I called that the energy of prayer, because to me it was astonishing how that loving force was so apparent, even in these murky realms, through those loving souls in the power of prayer. And then there were six faces that appeared. They provided veridical time anchors because there were people who were there in the last 24 hours in the ICU room with me. That's kind of a, a brief uh, version of the story, but there's, as you can imagine, a tremendous amount to it. When I came back to this world after seven days in that realm, my brain was wrecked, but it came back uh, very rapidly. Words and language over hours, memory of, of my loved ones and family relationships over days. And over two months, every bit of it came back. In fact, the memories were more complete after returning than they had been before coma. That's another deep mystery that we explore in the book. Interesting. 
So, yes, the book he's referring to, again, is Proof of Heaven, which people can obviously buy if they want to read it. And there was also a nice talk you gave at a Theosophical Society that I listened to the other day that goes into this in a, a lot of detail for about an hour and a half. So if people want to hear that, if you just search on YouTube for Eben Alexander, Proof of Heaven, Theosophical Society or something, it'll, it'll come right up. But that was a nice unpacking of the story. There are a couple of thoughts that came as you were saying all this. <laughs> one is sort of a humorous one, which is that, boy, if we could have a recording of this and, and send it back in time prior to your coma and have you listen to it, you would have thought, oh, my God, what happened to me? <laughs> what did somebody slip in my coffee? Well, like, That's ex- you know, except the reality is that all the data is there oh, yeah. to fully support the amazing uh, aspects of this. So it's not as if I would dismiss this case as irrelevant and hallucination. Yeah, all yeah. the surrounding data is so shocking, you just have to pay attention to it. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem with it all, but I, I'm always intrigued by the notion of paradigm shift and how people get locked into a certain worldview and what it might take to pry them out of it and all and nothing better than direct personal experience to, to pry somebody yeah, out. Well, personal experience that's something karen and i really focus on in our workshops because we believe everyone can come to have that kind of personal experience to support this knowledge of kind of the higher realms in our spiritual nature yeah another thing i found interesting was that you seem to cycle repeatedly through these different levels and you were in this coma for about a week, so it could be that, you know, all this was going on for a long time in Earth time, although I think it must have seemed much longer in your subjective experience. But the yeah. cycling is interesting because that's, in a way, that's kind of the way spiritual practice works. You don't do it 24-7. You dip into it and come out and integrate in activity and dip in again and come out. And it makes the dye of the cloth color fast as if dipping in dye and bleaching in sun and dipping in dye and bleaching in sun. Eventually, the color sticks. So there's, right. there's something more to be gained by that, I think, than just staying in a certain state. Well, that's a beautiful point. And I think to me, it's simply, especially discovering that incredible role of what we call music, vibration or frequency, Mm -hmm. being what we remember that helps us to actually navigate those realms. To me, that was a very important discovery that is very much related to a lot of the work we do now with Karen and sacred acoustics and using sound to get into deep transcendental states because sound can be a very effective tool to help uh, engineer these journeys. Yeah. And yeah. also that sound, of course, sounds in those realms are not sounds heard with physical ears, just like we don't see with the eyes there. Our, our ways of knowing are through identification and much grander. That's part of the reason these journeys are so difficult to describe, is because our very modes of knowing are so much more kind of intense and involved with the universe. Mantras work on the basis of sound, too, not only the ones you chant out loud, but even the ones you think mentally, because thoughts are actually a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. So a mantra is a sound which can take you from a grosser level of thinking to subtler and then beyond to the transcendent. But an external sound such as the, how do you pronounce that, binaural or something? Binaural beats. Binaural beats, yeah, can achieve a similar effect. And obviously everyone's experienced this. I mean, you listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or something and the sound just transports you to another realm. So sounds are very powerful and all cultures have recognized this. I remember Mickey Hart, who was the drummer of the Grateful Dead, wrote a book called Drumming on the Edge of Madness. And it was all about how 
ancient cultures from around the world have used rhythms and drumming to transport people into altered or higher states of consciousness. Right, very much. Well, there's no question that music, sound, vibration can be very important, and binaural beats are a very special form of sound that are dealt with mainly down in the lower brainstem. And that's why I think they can have such a profound role in kind of releasing conscious awareness from the here and now and the kind of illusion itself. Mm. Another thing I was wondering as you were recounting that just now is how much your experience concurs with other NDE experiencers and with people like Michael Newton, who wrote about the period of that we spend between lives. We can talk about reincarnation a little bit, but he found through his hypnosis of thousands of people to a period between lives that we sort of go into this realm where we review our lessons from the previous life and prepare for the next one. Well, I think there's a tremendous amount to that. I mean, the whole notion of the life review, of kind of going through the the main residual teaching points of one's life, that's been part of near-death experiences going back at least 2,400 years to the time of Plato when he wrote about Armenian soldier Ur killed in battle, who woke up on the funeral pile before they uh, burned his body. And his story to his fellow soldiers was, when you die, your life flashes before your eyes, and what you realize is the only thing of real importance is how much love you were able to share with the world. And so the life review, Karen and I often talk about this in our books and our works, the life review is kind of how the golden rule is written into the fabric of the universe. And uh, I would say these experiences uh, very broadly have that kind of life review element. And the interesting thing about the life review is you don't really experience it from your own perspective as much as from the emotional perspective of those around you affected by your actions and thoughts. And that's where the life review starts to become a beautiful demonstration of how we're all in this together. And if we hurt another, we're really hurting ourselves. And so NDEs have a lot to inform this world about how we should treat each other and live these lives. And it really begins with a deeper understanding of that life review. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with Danny and Brinkley's story. And he, he was a sharpshooter in Vietnam and you know, killed people. And he had four near-death experiences, two because of lightning strikes and I think two because of heart attacks or something. And in each one, he had to experience what the people connected with the persons he had killed experienced as a result of his having killed them. In other words, he experienced the ramifications of his actions from the perspective of everyone whom they impacted. Well, I think that's a general feature of life reviews. I mean, the more you kind of study these and come to an understanding of them, I mean, it's at a soul level. So really, you're getting at all the ramifications that we normally wouldn't think to kind of connect, you know, and connecting the dots in in this world. But that's where the life review goes far beyond simply what you could remember in trying to make amends in your life. But it really goes back into the actual events of your life. Yeah which is astonishing. And this is why I often recommend do this as you're going through your life. Realize when you've hurt people, make the amends now, and you won't have to go through all of that at the end of your life because you will already have dealt with it. I go through that quite a bit myself, especially like sometimes during meditation or something, I'll remember something I did to somebody 50 years ago and I'll, and I'll think, oh my God, how could I do that? And I've even actually reached out to a couple of people and apologized for having done those things. Yeah, so you're doing that. And it's interesting. Sometimes you have a different perspective many years later. So that's awesome that they come up in meditation 
perfect time for them to come up. And then you realize completely differently how your behavior might have affected that person. Yeah. Well, as you know, and as most people listening probably know, when, you know, meditation and practices like that definitely unearths deeper stuff that we've been carrying around. It's been, you know, stored some scars, they call it in Sanskrit, and kind of works it out. Uh, and when enough of it has been worked out, then awakening or realization can occur. But it can't, yeah, it can't so easily occur if we're carrying all that baggage unresolved. It's right. kind of interesting because this seems to be a natural process at the end of life that we go through, whether we really want to or not. I just finished reading a book by Christopher Kerr, a hospice doctor in Buffalo, called Death is But a Dream. And he talks about the only word he can really use is dream, but they're not really dreams because these people, when they're at the end of their life, start having experiences that are more real than real, just how near-death experiencers describe them. And it seems like the life review begins there because people start revisiting events. Some people are having beautiful experiences. Others are reckoning with their past. And uh, one was a cop who realized he was a dirty cop. And he had done all kinds of things good, but he had done all kinds of things bad. And he was really reckoning with all of this and wondering, you know, how it was all going to turn out. And it was just before he died, his dreams shifted into other types of dreams of peace and love. And he actually had that transformation right before he passed on. And so it seems to happen automatically in a life review, but also right as we're getting ready to transition. I find that fascinating. Did you ever hear what Steve Jobs' final words were? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. That. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I know what he was seeing. Yeah. And wow, oh, wow is right. <laughs> That's just beautiful. I love that. Uh, Mona Simpson wrote that uh, op-ed in the New York Times about his passing. He was his sister. So there's a kind of underlying, a couple of underlying assumptions that everything we're saying is based upon. One is that obviously we're more than this physical body and there's some deeper aspect to our existence that outlives the physical body and not everybody believes that. I don't know what percent the percentages are. Do you, do you know what percentage of the general population has that perspective? I, I think it, it depends largely on, you know, which decade and, and which survey. But um, I would say probably more than 50 percent have had a pretty solid indication through an after-death communication or deathbed vision, uh, shared death experience, what have you, that there's much more to this world than just the physical. Yeah. So in it's 19, actually fairly common. In 1984, there was a study, 50 percent of people who had lost a spouse had a connection with them that made them certain that their spouse had survived. Yeah. So that was way back in 1984. Yeah. So I'm sure it's gone up. And of course, I think staunch materialists would say that this is just wishful thinking. You know, we, we just sort of want to hang on to these hopes and dreams. But really, when you're dead, you're dead. When you start looking at the evidence, you find that this is not wishful thinking. For example, I had an after death dream of my stepfather. It was about a year after he had died and taken his own life. So I was concerned about him, and he showed up in this dream, a different dream, just as that hospice doctor described. It's a little different than, well, actually vastly different than any typical dream. And when I encountered him, we had our encounter of, yes, you're okay, yes, everything is fine. But then he also gave me a piece of information about my mother. And he said that she had been dating a man who had been to her home for three different occasions. And he thought that maybe it wasn't a good idea for them to keep seeing each other. And so I 
spoke to my mother. I didn't speak to her often. We lived in different cities. And she told me when I gave her this information that, in fact, she had been dating a man who had come to the home and picked her up three different times. And he turned out to be an old friend from high school. And they both had lost spouses and they were trying to see if they might get together. And she had just decided, maybe I shouldn't see him anymore. And that's when the message came and validated. So when that kind of thing starts to happen, that's not wishful thinking, this information that you're able to really validate. And that's where those materialists really need to start looking at this evidence and taking it seriously. Yeah. And of course, there are thousands of accounts like that. Thousands. When it happens to you, that's when you know. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the research of Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker with children who remember past lives in detail, and it's possible to go to the village or whatever and corroborate what the kids are saying, which they have no way of knowing otherwise. It's just they're actually remembering this stuff, and they can go there and they can name people and identify objects, all kinds of things. I was just going to say that's a very important body of research. People can access a lot of that if you go to uvadops.org. That's University of Virginia uh, Division of Perceptual Studies uh, website. And basically, to cut to the chase, over six decades, they've identified more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children where the best explanation is one of true reincarnation. Of course, they originally thought they would just disprove all these cases. But no, what happened was there was too much evidence supporting true reincarnation. I think you cannot possibly discuss consciousness in the current era you know, as a scientist or philosopher, without having a ready knowledge of that data that uh, Ian Stevenson and now Jim Tucker have uncovered. It's astonishing and very strong support of the reality of the primacy of consciousness. And what I love is how Ian started with the uh, Indian-type cultures, societies that already sort of believed in reincarnation, where these stories were more common. But I know Jim Tucker He has spent significant time trying to find stories here in the United States, in this culture, and he's finding them. The most uh, famous one that I'm familiar with is Soul Survivor, about the boy who is having dreams about being in a plane on fire. And turns out he found out through all kinds of veridical information that he was, in fact, a World War II pilot who died in a plane crash. So this kind of thing, you just can't continue to deny it. I could rattle off some interesting facts there. Oh, I'll I'll just give you one fact. This boy had three G.I. Joes, and he named them Leon, Walter, and Billy. Later on, his family was able to connect with a man who was still alive, who apparently knew this boy when he was the other person, validated that three other men who died on that same day were named Walter, Leon, and Billy. And he even had named them according to their hair color in the, real took life. took the G.I. Joe. Yeah. yeah Amazing. Yeah. But there's happen? a lot more to that story. Yeah, a lot it's, more. it's a book called Soul Survivor. Okay. S-O-U-L Survivor. And, and James, James Leninger. Leninger mm-hmm. so. yeah. And Jim Tucker validated all yeah, of he that. He added that case. Yeah. I mean, the kid yeah. remembered the name of the ship that his plane had taken off from and Right, yeah. the Bay, Casablanca yeah. class yeah. Um, aircraft carrier. And he knew so much. He knew he'd been flying a Corsair, which was an unusual plane to be flying off that carrier. But that's, the history was actually that. So there's a lot of facts that line up in that case. But there are other cases, too. There are plenty of other cases that Jim Tucker has written about. Yeah. In the U.S. And I think the reason we're interested in this and that we're spending so much time on it is that if this is the way life works and hundreds of millions of people don't realize it, 
that's a huge blind spot. It's a huge misunderstanding. And, and what kind of effect does it have on one's life to either realize or not realize that this is the way life works? I think it's huge. If you think that you're going to just cease to exist when your body dies, or you feel like, okay, my life is a vast continuum and I change bodies from time to time, like I change clothes from time to time. Those two perspectives would, in my opinion, radically influence the way you feel, the way you live your life. Absolutely. And just the deathbed visions, people witnessing loved ones, and sometimes those are shared and bystander events where someone else at the bedside might also see the loved one appearing. It just gives us such a beautiful lesson about how the the deeper aspects of this uh, kind of revolution in the science of consciousness is really all about our relationships and about love and about, uh, uh, you know, helping each other. So there are tremendous lessons there that can inform our kind of materialist, sodded world um, and help us come to a richer understanding of, of a reality uh, that's much more comforting and where we really do reincarnate with our loved ones and things like that. But I think you make an interesting point. You you really live your life differently, whether you're in one or other of those camps. And uh, I know when I first met Evan, and uh, this was before his, it was after his near-death experience, but before his book came, came out. So I didn't really know his story, but I knew he'd had a near-death experience. We happened to both be attending a workshop related to using sound to achieve altered states of consciousness. But I asked him, just making conversation, I'd known others who had near-death experiences. I said, what was the big lesson that you learned? I thought I would cut right to the chase because these experiencers come back usually with these deep, profound spiritual lessons. And he says to me, what I learned is the brain does not create consciousness. And I was very confused by that. And I said, well, why would anyone think that it does? <laughs> and so that shows you the camp I was living yeah. in, where Evan thought this was just this huge discovery. And I thought, well, that's like, just duh. how it works, my friend. <laughs> and, I, and so when I think back, where did that feeling come from? Where did I learn that? And I don't believe I learned it. I believe I knew it when I was born. And when I was presented with information, say, about the Christian religion or what science said, I just knew that certain things were incorrect. And I think a lot of children know these things. And somehow it gets conditioned out of us as we grow older, many, many, many of us. It's really our birthright to understand how our consciousness works. There's a reason why that ancient maxim, know yourself, is so significant. Because if you know yourself as a biological being that will just disintegrate in in a few decades, very different from living your life as if you will continue, as if you will return. My father was telling me how concerned he was about climate change because of his his children, his grandchildren, and now he has a great-grandchild, my grandson. And he's so worried. And I said, but dad, you're going to come back too. You're going to have to come back and see what we've done with this world at some point. And so wouldn't you want to be concerned about the earth for your own reasons so that when we come back again and again, we still have this beautiful place to uh, really learn these lessons of love and life. And he said, no, no, I'm going to open a beach resort in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my dad has a, he has a very skeptical mind. But the one thing, he's a military officer, mm-hmm. but the one thing that he, uh, 
he believes is that he believes he has past life memories of living in Scotland huh. for whatever reason. Very he's strong. pretty certain he has this connection to it. And so that feeling is really what convinces people, whether they talked about it or not, or not with their friends. Many people walk around knowing this, but they don't necessarily reside in company that wants to hear about it. Yeah. So. Several threads here we could pursue. Another one is that we could think of life as having strata. And there's the grossest, most superficial, most obvious level, and everyone perceives that. But then there are subtler levels, which the subtler you go, the fewer people perceive them. And so we could sort of understand the spiritual enterprise as being the exploration of of all these various strata and the incorporation of them into our ordinary everyday awareness. One model we've discussed along those lines is really three strata or three realms. The physical realm, which is that gross realm you spoke of. Then there's the mental realm and the spiritual realm. So the mental realm, that's where we are right now. That's our thoughts, our emotions, everything we can encounter, our unconscious, our transcendental state and meditation. But then there's the spiritual realm. And uh, that's more elusive. That's not so easy to get to, except when we're in those higher transcendental states. So they're really, it's really that mental state, mental realm that has all of the capacity to uh, do everything. And that's us. So I think that know yourself comes in uh, really handy when you realize that your mental space, you spoke about, you know, thoughts being forms, but your mental space is really, according to Evan, what is creating all of our physical reality. And it's our mental space that allows us to have an awareness of that spiritual realm. So yeah, this this way of looking at things, um, this paradigm shift, you've been at this a long time, Rick. <laughs> When's it going to really break through to the mainstream, do you think? It's breaking. Wow. If you compare where things are now to where they were in the 60s or early 70s, there's been huge progress. You know, a lot of the things we're discussing here were very unfamiliar to most people 50 years ago, but, you know, now they're more or less mainstream. I mean, Eben's book was on the bestseller list for 40 weeks, and a lot of books like it have been, and there's all kinds of things on TV and all kinds of great movies that explore these themes. So it's really seeping into the popular culture. Happening. We're probably in the midst of it and just don't realize. And of course, you got to remember there's also a background of experiencers. So people out there, literally by the millions, having these experiences and kind of coming back shocked, but often not willing to tell people. That was one of the main reasons I wrote Proof of Heaven, was I wanted to take the lid off so that the medical profession, for one, would take these seriously, but also other people would too. So they'd share their stories more because the more we can do that, allow all the people who have these experiences to talk about them and honor them as experiences that tell us something about uh, humanity at a very deep level. I think that's what will help the world to change. It's just that natural background incidence of these extraordinary experiences. Yeah. And I think it's, it's more than just on the level of talking, because I think when people have these subtle experiences or when they meditate or do whatever they do, it enlivens the morphogenetic field, to quote Rupert Sheldrake. It somehow saturates the subtle atmosphere with just a little bit more whatever. You know, one way of looking at it is 
well, let's use the, the metaphor of a forest. So every time somebody has one of these experiences, whether through a spiritual practice or an NDE or whatever, I think it fertilizes the ground of the forest. And then all the plants are a little bit more nourished and they can grow a little bit more vibrantly and, and healthily. So I think that that's building up and building up and building up. And to switch metaphors, there's the idea of phase transition where something in a system will build up to a point where there's a sudden phase transition and everything changes, like even boiling water. You know, you can get it to 99 degrees centigrade, not, nothing much seems to be happening, one more degree and it boils. So we don't know how close we may be to a, a kind of a boiling, so to speak, of, of a collective consciousness where there's a radical shift and not just this really well, almost imperceptible incremental shift. I would say I sense that we're getting very close to that inflection point. And I would say that it involves a history and a destiny that goes back at least 5,000 years in, in human understanding. And there's kind of a coalescence going on now. And in many ways, as a neuroscientist studying the nature of consciousness and the mind-brain relationship, to me, the astonishing thing is how some of the deepest truths we seem to be coming to in neuroscience and philosophy of mind about the oneness of consciousness about that binding force of love that's so apparent in NDEs, about all of that, is that in many ways, some of the spiritual traditions, both East and West, have known these deep truths forever. But I think what will make it different this time is this alignment with kind of the scientific investigation of consciousness. And science is a, a method of objective kind of comparison of information and sharing uh, that I think will trump the uh, past century's efforts by, say, religious leaders and prophets to get us to this uh, realm of truth. But now with this study of scientific study of consciousness, we're coming to kind of agreed upon territory. And that's where the afterlife and reincarnation seriously discussed and studied uh, in scientific and philosophical circles is where this revolution will now finally truly happen, as opposed to what might have happened over these 5,000 years from various uh, leadership and spiritual traditions. Yeah, I think that's really important and really exciting. And I think that, I know you talk about this in your book, but I think that the the cooperation or collaboration of science and spirituality will give us something much more profound than either has been able to give us separately. It's interesting. Eben and I were just speaking about this this morning, Mm -hmm. how some modern clergy, some modern ministers kind of doubt the reality of God and the afterlife. That's how powerful the materialist culture has really been because they don't have that support. And so if science can come out and really support, support. that this is real, there should be a renaissance around it all. Not necessarily religion, but this spiritual but not religious kind of thing that's taking on more and more. Yeah, and it is happening. And there are a number of organizations like the Galileo Foundation and the Science and Medical Network and the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Science and Non-Duality Conference and all kinds of things that discuss this kind of stuff and popularize these ideas. And then naturally there's a whole faction that have their heels dug in and resist this sort of notion. But that's kind of typical of the history of uh, development of ideas in the world. Well, I would say the in the world of science and philosophy, what it really boils down to is uh, whether someone is basically a Newtonian determinist who thinks, okay, the brain creates all conscious phenomena and that the brain behaves like a Newtonian system of billiard balls and all that, 
That's where they get misled, is they're still living in a model of science that's been disproven for more than 80 years now through quantum physics and the emerging world of quantum mechanics, which very clearly opens up fully, not only to allow for the reality of an afterlife and reincarnation, but in many ways to insist on it because of what modern quantum physics says about the nature of reality and consciousness for a sentient being, going all the way back, say, to um, John Wheeler's participatory anthropic principle. He was the head of physics at Princeton. He talked about how astonishing it was, this feature of contextuality, where the mental processes of the investigating scientist actually play such a deep role in what emerges in the results of the experiments. You cannot deny uh, the kind of prime role of that mental layer of the universe. And that's where uh, I would say, I love that quote from Werner Heisenberg, who won the Nobel Prize in 1932 for his foundational work as a father of quantum physics. And he said, your first sip from the glass of natural sciences will lead you towards atheism. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. <laughs> and that is absolutely the deep truth of quantum physics and the, the people who have resisted so hard in the scientific community keep insisting on explanations of, say, the measurement paradox in quantum physics by assuming infinite parallel universes. And to them, that works just fine. And it gets rid of having to invoke consciousness. But infinite parallel universes doesn't seem to be the world we really live in. And so the alternate answer that makes much more sense is objective idealism. That is the primacy of consciousness in the universe and that sentient beings simply have access to that mental layer of information assimilation and integration. And that's where it starts to open up to a much fuller vision. Of course, that's what we talk about in Living in a Mindful Universe, our chapter five, the primordial mind hypothesis, looking at the brain as a filter a reducing valve that allows primordial consciousness to manifest. So we're really all part of that one mind, that infinite God force that NDEers have experienced. And in fact, that God force, I would say, is the very source of our conscious awareness. So really, this is a journey of discovering a much richer kind of relationship with the mind of the universe. So it's very rewarding and satisfying as an individual who's been through this kind of experience that the scientific community is actually making progress in kind of a theoretical system that would support it all. And I would just like to add that many of us in the world aren't really waiting for science to come up with these theories and data. Many of us who have had these experiences, who have this understanding, we don't need science. But it's very important for society's culture to understand this. So institutions and government and civic societies, you know, they make decisions, important decisions about how we're going to run our cities and so on. And just having this understanding, to, it seems to me, would just change everything. So while individuals, maybe we don't need science so much, many of us, the society in general truly, truly does need that. Science is having a bad rap these days among some so sometimes oh, our, the anti-science crowd is out there, but most of the secular society trusts science to tell us. And if science can come through there, which I think, really I think they are. So I, I believed ever since uh, months after my experience that these kind of questions are part of the scientific paradigm. I mean, one example of that is 
all the recent studies in the last eight years using functional MRI to look at the brain of people under the influence of psilocybin or LSD or DMT, you know, these powerful psychedelic substances and plant medicines. And what you find is the brain gets less active. It goes dark. It's not creating those phenomenal, extraordinary experiences. It's getting out of the way so they can happen. This is a perfect example of where the scientific community needs a bigger model than physicalism to try and explain, for example, the uh, influence of such plant medicines and psychedelics on the human psyche. It just makes much more sense to broaden to a bigger vision where you realize it's not created by the brain at all, but the brain is simply serving as a filter that allows presentation of conscious experience. And yet the ultimate origin of memory and of experience is beyond the physical realm. Oh, there's so many great things we're talking about. Each one of them could take us off for half an hour on a discussion of this or that. And you thought two hours was uh, long enough. <laughs> no, no, it never is. But uh-huh. it's sort of like... Never is. You are talking a minute ago about this infinite parallel universes thing, and I was reminded of the word parsimonious, which I learned from Bernardo Castro. I hadn't really been familiar right. with the word before. But it just means the simplest, most elegant explanation of a thing. It reminds me also of medieval astronomy, where they thought the Earth was the center of everything, and they had to really do backflips to understand why the planets moved as they did, with taking all these little extra loops and doing all these strange things. It didn't make sense, but obviously when you put the sun in the center, ah, the planets just fell into these beautiful elliptical orbits. So it's kind of funny how materialists struggle and strain to come up with extremely unparsimonious, unsimple, unelegant explanations of how consciousness relates to the brain, where a so much simpler explanation is just that the brain is it's like a transmitter-receiver radio. It, a radio intermediates with the electromagnetic field, which is more or less everywhere, and the brain does that with consciousness, and boom, it's such a simple explanation. Right, and that's where I think the science is finally starting the, the to The evidence emerge. is there for that. Yeah, the evidence is, is overwhelming. In fact, the biggest problem of looking at our culture and society in terms of this debate, and especially for people out there who think, oh, well, scientists, real scientists will tell you NDEs are possible because that implies some kind of spirit or consciousness independent of the brain. Well, that's the fact. That's actually what the empirical data shows us. And the good news is that the scientific world is coming up with ways to make plenty of sense of all this. Some of the scientific world. Some of the scientific world. The organizations, Rick, just read Yeah, like GalileoCommission.org, as you point out, Noetic.org, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. These are beautiful, reputable scientific organizations that have a lot to say about this because they study the evidence. In fact, I've come to realize that those out there in the lay press and scientific community who claim to have uh, contrary evidence to all this most likely are pseudo-skeptics. They've already made up their mind. They're not, they're not willing. They don't care about empirical data and about uh, rational argument. They simply have made up their mind that these things are impossible because the physicalist model must be true. And uh, that's where I think the world is certainly growing beyond that kind of simplistic nonsense of the debunkers and deniers of pseudo-skeptical camp. Yeah. And, you know, my attitude towards those people is not altogether unappreciative. Like, you know, I've read most of Sam Harris's books and I've been listening to his podcast for years and he's a brilliant guy. I would be totally intimidated to interview. (laughs) He'd probably make mincemeat of me. But, you know, he's just locked into this 
way of materialist thinking, despite all of his spiritual exploration and psychedelic exploration, he somehow hung on to that. One thing I read in one of his books, and he may have grown since mm-hmm. then, uh, I forget which the one we have. Oh, about. Waking Up. I waking up. up. Yeah, he speaks of one very specific Buddhist practice that's allowable, and all the rest are not allowable By whom? in his mind. Oh. Who said By they're not allowed? He found the technique that worked for him, which I maintain we're all going to find a slightly differing mm-hmm. combination of techniques that work the best. He found the technique that worked for him and then claimed that was the only technique that the rest of us could right. use. I thought that was kind of fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know Sam discusses my case in his book. He's discussed it in other places and he pretty much dismisses it. He tries to say it was simply a DMT experience as if, you know, he has the evidence that DMT does all of this. Not to take away from your point that Sam does bring some value to the world, even though we're picking on him for these things. Yeah, I I agree. But I think, for example, his critique of my case that Sam did in his podcast pales when you compare it, for example, to Bernardo Castrop and the way he treated my case. And he completely eviscerated Sam Harris's uh, analysis of my case, tore it apart based on very factual and modern scientific arguments. So it's a shame that Sam Harris, claiming to be a neuroscientist, a lot of people pay attention to what he says, and you know he's certainly entitled to his opinion, but I think if you read Bernardo Castrop's criticism on Bernardo's blog at bernardocastrop.com of Sam Harris, the way he had kind of attacked me, you realize how weak Sam Harris's position is and how poorly thought. I should read that. Sam Harris also did a, uh, a podcast episode recently explaining why he felt free will does not exist. Oh, and God. it was really detailed. That's a materialist, uh, it really was, you know, but as I listened, all of his arguments were predicated on what I would consider fundamental misunderstandings. For instance, he would say, right. well, you can't choose your parents, obviously, so that's... And I, and I thought, of course you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's funny. It's, it goes back to the, do you believe we disintegrate at the end of life or do we continue? It goes back to that. In the scientific world, you can have these other types of assumptions that take you way down the road, like only the physical world is real. You don't choose your parents. I love that he said that because we know, of course we choose (laughs) our parents. Yeah, there's so much more going on when you study this bigger world of consciousness studies, like the reincarnation work and the serious afterlife work and all of the work, say, from Stan Groff and Michael Newton, Brian Weiss, about transpersonal psychology, you know, the whole realization that to fully explain the events that our psyche is involved in in a human life, we have to realize that the soul has been through other uh, facets of existence, other lifetimes to contribute to the issues involved in this lifetime. So in other words, you come into this world kind of packed with the prior history. So it's not just nature and nurture, as I used to believe, the DNA of nature and the nurture of your upbringing, but that there are other features involved. And I'd say an astonishing feature of all of this is what I call programmed forgetting. Sitting here in our bodies in this kind of mental state, we don't necessarily have ready access to all those memories of past lives. It takes real work to uncover them. Just as Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson would tell you about past life memories in children, you have to harvest them before age five or six, because after that, they're natural processes where they get covered over. So you don't, as an adult, generally remember all about between lives and past lives that you do when you're a young child. 
so this program forgetting, I think, is kind of built into the system, just like we don't remember our dreams for most of us. Even though dreams and sleep are critical, you'll die in a few weeks if you're unable to sleep and dream. And yet uh, we don't remember the content. And likewise, the way the system is set up, we're supposed to live these lives without necessarily having all that ready access to that information. That's where meditation, centering prayer, hypnotic regression, all these techniques of kind of uncovering, removing those overlying layers can be so helpful. Two points. One is that, you know, what we were just saying a minute ago kind of loops back to what we were saying in the beginning, where having an understanding of the kind of stuff we're talking about has a huge impact on one's orientation to life. I think it also has a huge impact on a scientist's orientation to how he pursues knowledge, because if your starting assumptions are erroneous, it's like you're not aiming the arrow at the target. There's no way you're going to hit it. You're going to end up pursuing hypotheses that take you down dead ends. Or, and, and this could open up a whole area of discussion, you're going to accomplish things and perhaps technologies will arise out of your findings, but those technologies could be extremely mixed blessing unintentionally could have an extremely destructive influence, which I believe wouldn't be the case if the foundation from which those technologies arose was a state of enlightened consciousness. We can flesh that out in some detail. I would simply uh, add to that in terms of the, the scientific perspective. From my point of view, one of the biggest challenges of quantum physics and of the modern scientific world understanding the deepest lessons it's trying to teach us is this refusal by materialist scientists to acknowledge the reality of the mental realm, of mind, of the uh, kind of realm of consciousness as having its own fundamental existence. Um, because quantum physics pretty readily starts to resolve and become more understandable when you realize there's this top-down causal principle from the mental layer of the universe. Spiritual, mental, right. physical. That it yeah. originates in spiritual level of oneness, of connection, where we all have kind of similar purpose, and we're all in this together to help each other grow and live and learn and transform in these bodies in this material existence. And that's where I think you're exactly right, that the assumptions, if they're false, if they're off target, all that does is lead to a life of misery trying to connect the dots. You mean like you before to, your coma? Like me before my yeah. coma, exactly. <laughs> like all of your science that's still stuck in physicalism and believing the brain is the creator of consciousness. Of course not. And the evidence is all over that with this broader model of primordial mind and consciousness, as we discussed in living in a mindful universe with that primordial mind hypothesis, looking at the brain as a filter and consciousness as a fundamental property of the universe, that's a very facile explanation for the measurement paradox in quantum physics and helps us move to a whole other level of understanding. So those false assumptions can be very damaging, and they're especially bad for individuals who have had their own experiences showing them the bigger aspects of the spiritual realm and their involvement with the universe at that level, and yet they come back and try and share or tell their story or fit it in with a scientific uh, community and find that, that uh, some in the materialist scientific camp are trying to refute it because it's impossible so, no, it's not impossible. This is what most human experiences involve, and the science needs to grow up to explain that. And quantum physics takes us a long way towards that growing up. 
but it's not that infinite parallel universe explanation as much as uh, for those who want the quantum physics, I would steer you to uh, Carlo Rovelli's relational interpretation modified by Bernardo Castrop's metaphysics, and you'll start to realize how all of it makes sense, especially if you combine it with our use of filter theory in living in a mindful universe. You see how all of that can fit together and explain all this much more readily and allow fully for free will. Mm. For those listening, I've, I've interviewed Bernardo a couple of times, so you'll find him in the past interviews section if you want to check him out. Why do you think it is that materialists or physicalists are, are so entrenched or, and so fearful and so defensive about the kind of perspective we're discussing here? I mean, what have they got to lose if they were to shift to this perspective? Why are they hanging on for dear life? I think from their perspective, they have a lot to lose, especially those who are journalists, who are scientific and academic writers. Uh, they may have spent decades writing about all of, of this. For example, Christoph Koch spending all those decades studying memory in mouse brains, assuming that memories are stored in the human brain in the same way. And they spend all this time for this tremendous amount of effort into those scientific studies. And then to find that it is all for naught <laughs> can be a terrible Well, haven't, haven't there been that. great thinkers and scientists who at some point towards the end of their lives realized that they'd been wrong all the way and admitted it? And it was like a, a relief for them in a way. I, I can't think of, I've heard of examples of that, but I can't name a name at this point. There are, I think, uh, many scientists at the end of their life kind of come to that. I mean, one story that comes to mind is Roger Ebert, who was the, uh, the film guy. Yeah, Siskel and Ebert. Right. And uh, in fact, the end of my second book, Map of Heaven, recounts the story of his deathbed vision mm -hmm. of seeing that this is all a sham, <laughs> that this physical world is only a tiny part of the picture and that there's so much more to our existence. But didn't Einstein also, when he got near the end of the life after his friend died? And well, that, that, I think Einstein, we cover that in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, when Einstein was within months of his own death, which happened in April of 1955. One of his uh, nearest and dearest childhood friends, Michelle Besso, who had been instrumental in his first job working in the Swiss patent office, his, uh, Besso's father, I think, had been helpful in that. But the reality is that Einstein, there's a beautiful quote from him where he says that time, to those of us who study physics, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said uh, time is simply an illusion. The past and future are a, a very persistent illusion. But that uh, this friend of his who had passed a little bit before him, he said that's of no real concern because he realized there were deeper aspects of this universe, that time flow as we saw it in the material world as we saw it was not the be-all and end-all. And he sensed in that quote, you can tell that, that um, Einstein is kind of teasing the idea that he and his friend Michelle Besso will be together again in an afterlife. Well, and also, this just reminds me, are you familiar with the work of Gary Schwartz? Yes, I interviewed uh, Mark Pitstick not long ago, who does most okay. of the interviews these days, because Gary's behind the scenes. I'll just bring this up. I don't know if the scientific validity of all of this for certain, but part of his research is actually reaching out to scientists who have already passed on to oh, yeah. get right. information the to yeah. help us in the Amazing present. Amazing work. Yeah. But he's doing it from these scientists who are on the other side are helping to advise the project. They so. call them the A-team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it does include people like Einstein. So And um, uh, Bohm. David yeah, David Bohm. Bohm's very a very important player. Fascinating. That. If, if that's the case, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah. And with a point, with a point like that, my attitude is I, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but I take everybody with a grain of salt and yeah. proportions <laughs> vary. So right. I hear something like that and I think, yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. Like, it's not like I'm just going to sort of believe it hook, line and sinker, but it's an interesting right. area of exploration. Which is exactly how I prefaced because I don't necessarily either. But nonetheless, if he's successful and can document all of this eventually, I think we'll all be. Well, that's the key. The proof is in the pudding. So we'll see what they come up with. Fascinating uh, premise. There certainly is nothing that we know in modern science and philosophy that prevents the reality of that kind of an information exchange. In many ways, it's kind of reassuring because there are general ideas in science and philosophy that information, in many ways, is conserved in this universe in very profound ways. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here, that conservation and growth, the transformation of information, uh, goes far beyond any kind of uh, conservation principles of, of energy or mass or any of those things in terms of explaining the deeper running of the universe. Mm. Let's talk about memory for a few minutes. Uh, you cover this a bit in Living in a Mindful Universe. To use a computer metaphor, obviously memory isn't just stored in the brain, otherwise we wouldn't be able to remember past lives because we're, we have a different brain now. You know, I have stuff stored on my hard drive here, but I also have it backed up to the cloud. I wouldn't want to have to access all my data off the cloud all the time because that would be slow compared to accessing it off the hard drive. So there's a value to both. Do you think that there's something like that going on where things are stored in the brain in some way that we don't understand, but they're also stored in the cloud? Or maybe some things are stored here and some things are not because some things aren't worth storing in the cloud or whatever. Looking at it as a neurosurgeon and being aware of all the work over the last century and a half by neurosurgeon to tease out this uh, issue of memory in the brain. And in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we talk a lot about contributions of Dr. Wilder Penfield, who's one of those renowned and respected neurosurgeons of the 20th century. He was Canadian, spent a tremendous amount of his career electrically stimulating the brain in awake patients. Now, I've done hundreds of those cases myself, so I know all about the technical details of how it's done and what the potentials are. But I certainly defer to his kind of scientific expertise because he made a career of this. And he wrote a book in 1975 called Mystery of the Mind, where he made it very clear that you cannot explain the workings of conscious awareness and of memory just based on the workings of the brain alone. And there are many reasons why that's true. But he had been chasing this chimera of memory, assuming it would be in the neocortex, and by the end of his career, 1975, he made it very clear, no, memories are not stored in the neocortex at all. It's crystal clear to neurosurgeons that if you operate and interfere with the medial temporal lobe, the hippocampus, especially if there's bilateral damage, you can uh, greatly impair a person's ability to convert short-term to long-term memory. But that's not the same as identifying storage sites of long-term memory. And in fact, neurosurgeons for Decades have mused over that issue because in spite of a, more than a million resections of brain done over the last century, there's never been a reported case of demonstrable lapse in, in specified long-term memories that occurred with a specific region of brain being removed. And so we've come to realize that this very notion that memories are somehow stored in the brain is very suspect. There's no real evidence to support it based on neurosurgical experience and uh, all else that we know about the brain. And as you point out, the uh, reincarnation cases 
make it crystal clear that looking at the brain as a repository doesn't work because you don't have a brain intact between those lifetimes. And important to point out for the listeners who may not be aware, but only about 20% of those cases studied uh, by UVA docs involve uh, the same family. So the majority of them would not be any kind of hereditary DNA type memory transfer either. And especially when you then look at NDEs writ large and look at life reviews and look how detailed they are, this goes far beyond anybody's ability to what they'd like to remember about their life. So the brain is really the receiver. The the brain's the receiver, but in fact, being fully liberated from the brain gives you far greater access to memory. That's what happens in a life review. You know, people talk about being able to count the mosquitoes in the air around a scene that happened when they were a young child and drowned. That's an example from Bruce Grayson's new book, After. That's an extraordinary level of detail, but you often hear that kind of story. So these are not just vague, sepia-tinted memories. These are extraordinary relivings in a way that show you that the universe has the power by having access to these multiple layers of our experience to completely relive everything we've ever been through in our life. I mean, in many ways, it shows us that our notions of time flow are completely erroneous because time flow in the earthly realm is set up to allow this stage setting for this drama to unfold. But what you see when you leave the physical body at the time of death in a near-death or a dying experience, deathbed vision, things like that, is this far more robust kind of access to the events of life that go far beyond what any individual could remember. Uh, and so memory is not stored in the brain. This is one of the biggest nails in the coffin of materialist neuroscience. That's why you don't hear it broadly discussed in scientific circles, because it really kind of sets you completely adrift from any kind of physicalist rescue, uh, you know, in terms of a potential explanation. Uh, when you realize that, no, uh, there's much more going on here to understand, to explain all these kind of phenomena. Do some people try to argue that, well, Actually, the memory of how many mosquitoes were hovering around was in your brain, but it just got finally triggered under this unusual circumstance. But it was there. Does anybody try to argue that kind of thing? I'm sure somebody would try and argue that. But the more you kind of work with the brain and realize what's involved in synaptic transmission, in the interaction of these 100 billion neurons and each one with their 10,000 connections to the rest of the brain, that's when you start realizing that to presume that some very minutiae detail of a a memory from early childhood would live in a physical system of of synapses and all that over all these years with all the kind of vagaries and chance for noise in in, uh, those physical systems, uh, you start to realize that to try and pin it all on uh, materialist models of synaptic connections between neurons really just doesn't work to explain memory in that big sense. Mm. And, of course, what we're alluding to here is some kind of Akashic record field or something like that in which everything is stored. Well, I tend to call it the quantum hologram. That's okay. uh, I love how Edgar Mitchell and Bob Sterich used that term in one of their papers uh, on consciousness years ago. And I think that's a, a better way of looking at it. It's an information field of all potential. That's what I would say is the spiritual realm. That's yeah. where all that information is and We can access it. When we use that word spiritual, so many people want to go right to God, religion, some kind of deeper meaning. But what if it's just the information field that, you know, provides the blueprint for this world? For all of conscious awareness and all of memory. Yeah. 
it seems like there would be different aspects of this field because we don't necessarily have to share everybody else's memories. So there must be sort of an individual one, then there must be some that overlap because sometimes we do share, and then there must be some kind of collective memory, perhaps even in concentric circles where you have you know, family memory fields and national memory fields and the whole global memory field. I think Bernard, Bernardo talks about that mm-hmm. when he talks about how consensus reality could exist. And that's where all of us kind of agree on some level that mountains are, are a mountain. Well, I think you're right. I like to look at it as we're kind of like drops uh, falling in the ocean, and yet there's a certain viscosity to those drops mm-hmm. so that they tend to kind of stay together. There's a sense of information um, interrelationship, I'll say. Or uh, resonance. Yeah, resonance, kind of like constructive interference or what have you of information that allows us to identify with energy signatures in that spiritual realm of close uh, kind of relatives and soulmates and that kind of thing. So we can tend to recognize them in that space through this kind of overlap of, of energy signature. And yet, there's that broad kind of spreading out. Uh, Not even just recognized, but being drawn to. Being drawn to in many ways. Yeah, I think that those principles together. are very operative in that uh, kind of quantum hologram. And that, that's how kind of souls identify in their journey as they relate to certain souls. Um, I mean, to me, uh, one of the kind of a sidelight that makes the point here is if you look at Winbridge.org, and that's a group that scientifically studies psychic mediums. Julie Beichel, And they validate Julie Beichel, yeah. et cetera. And you look at their quintuply blinded protocols for assessing mediums, where basically the medium only gets a first name, you know, Ralph. And, and then somehow the medium is able to track through uh, their processes and get to the correct Ralph in the afterlife. But the key ingredient that makes it work is that the sitter, that's the person who has lost the loved one, in their prayer or meditation, they invite the loved one to connect the dots for the psychic. And so, in other words, it's simply by putting that will into the universe to connect the dots to help make the realization, and the loved one does that from the other side. And to me, that's what makes it all work. That's why you can have any psychics that have any kind of ability to do this, is because there are real connections going on on the other side. And... um, my point is simply that that shows you this uh, kind of power of uh, resonance and of uh, familiarity and how these soul lines can actually direct uh, their kind of understanding and relationships and come to a deeper knowing. So it's not just a raindrop falling in the ocean and diffusely spreading into all of consciousness in that primordial mind, but actually having some viscosity that preserves relationships between incarnations for the benefit of soul groups that are growing through these multiple incarnations. Mm-hmm. I think one key point that is integral to the teaching of Vedanta and many other schools of thought is that, um, and we've kind of touched on it, but it might be good to hit it more clearly, is that we, we have a subtle body in, in addition to our gross body. And it's kind of like a Russian dolls thing where the you know subtle body is contained within the gross body but is can also become independent of it and as happens in an out-of-body experience and as happens when the gross body dies. It's like when the gross body dies, it's, it's considered in the Vedantic model only one of five different sheaths. And so now we have four sheaths instead of five because the gross body died. That explanation helps a lot in terms of um, understanding how 
the soul, which I guess you could call this subtle body, uh, migrates from life to life or retains memories or anything like that. And to my way of thinking, it's it's not a really weird, far-fetched idea. It fits in with everything else. And I think that makes makes perfect sense. But again, it's this notion of seeing that there's kind of an essence of our soul that goes through these multiple lifetimes in a process of growth and transformation, I would add. So from our point of view, this notion of reincarnation is not about trying to get off the wheel of suffering after multiple incarnations, but that the, the goal is actually of growth and transformation. I would say the big picture view would be that uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who wrote his book, The Phenomenon of Man in the Mid-20th Century, he was a scientist, a paleontologist. He was also a French Jesuit priest, so spiritually advanced. And he realized that these, this talk of evolution, of Darwinian evolution, as it was discussed in the mid-20th century, actually had a bigger context in which all of consciousness was doing the evolving. And I think that that essentially is what's truly going on. And so just like that old saying in politics, you know, all politics is local. Well, likewise, all evolution of consciousness of the universe is nothing more than individual sentient beings coming into a deeper understanding of their own purpose for being in relationship with the universe. I just want to add that this this evolution we don't think of as a linear evolution going from primitive to advanced, but a cyclical evolution, a spiral evolution, where we go through cycles of evolution, where we do dip down into not so fun and then maybe more fun and enlightening. But this reminds me of Rick Tarnas because in Cosmos and Psyche, he does an incredible job of explaining how the rotation of the planets around Earth seems to mark the sun. around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Evan. It's good to have it. A flashback to her medieval, medieval lifetime. No, I have when she discovered. No, no, no. I have this weird verbal dyslexia. So thank you, Evan. Uh, Anyway, so Rick Tarnas has marked these cycles that seem to match up with the uh, cycles of the planets around the sun. And so uh, Evan has even come on board that some of this might even some of this astrology might actually have some validity to it. Just because he realizes in science they use Fourier waves to do Fourier the transforms. same thing. Fourier well, transforms. I mean, basically, it just has to do with understanding those uh, deeper relationships and uh, not just the Fourier transforms, but... Uh, but how you use Fourier transforms to predict cycles. Right. Just accepting that there are, are cycles, large and small, that involve individuals, their lifetimes, and involve societies, ethnic groups... This very notion of cyclicity is part of the dynamic of growth and increasing understanding and transformation. And yet that cyclicity, in many ways, could be measured by, you know, the movement of planets and moons and all that kind of thing in orbital cycles. They're all just uh, harmonic oscillators. So in many ways, you can look at astrology as simply being an admission that these oscillating patterns that manifest in human existence at, at various levels are oscillations, and you can measure them with any clock, and that includes anything that's cycling and orbiting. And we can look at this in our own lives, really, because we all have patterns, patterns in our relationships, patterns in the job we hold or something, and certain troublesome issues that we think we might have resolved early in life seem to come back to us. In a different form. Yeah, and then we have an opportunity to address it in a different fashion. So if you look at that from an individual perspective, we can see that easily in our lives. And yet, 
from a larger perspective, that could absolutely be what's going on. And it speaks to the holographic principle where everything in the whole can be found in the piece, right? So if our individual lives work that way, why wouldn't all of the evolution of consciousness work in the same cyclical fashion? Incidentally, for those listening, I'm going to be interviewing Rick Tarnas next week. Are you saying that with the cyclical thing, I might have completely misunderstood, that rather than sort of progressing through higher and higher stages of evolution over the course of the existence of our soul, if we want to use the word soul, that it even cycles so we go back to being troglodytes and dinosaurs and tree sloths and stuff and then work our way up and (laughs) go through the whole thing again? In theory, yeah. But can I just mention the yugas, the yuga cycles of the Hindu tradition? There's different interpretations of how many years this cycle is, but the the one I'm speaking of is roughly a 24,000-year cycle, which just happens to match up with the astronomical precession of the equinoxes. The yuga cycle does have us moving from a very spiritual higher realm. And of course, the Greeks talked about that golden age. Many cultures talked about this golden age and that we seem to have lost knowledge. And then you go all the way into the dark ages. That's where it's in a book called The Yugas, where two people really go through all of this. But the dark ages were really the bottom of that material realm. And now we're on our way back up to that spiritual. But each time we go through that cycle, in theory, we're doing a little bit better job. There's, I would assume to be some judgment on how well we're doing or how well we're succeeding at whatever goal we set out to learn. And the one we feel that that goal that we've set out to learn is all about love. And so many of us think, oh, we understand, but our society is not really based on love as a, as a founding principle. So this lesson is the one we're evolving And, and I would simply add from my perspective, this is why we often describe it as a spiral evolution, is because you come back around to similar issues, but there's a certain amount of growth between rotations so that you're actually progressing and learning more. But just like that old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. Likewise, some of the challenges that engender certain growth and understanding can represent themselves at a whole new level of this uh, evolution of all consciousness. And also there's some traditions who say, I think it's the theosophists and some others who talk about these grand cycles that we go through and that when we reach that darkest point or really when we start to figure out how the material world works as we're coming out of it, we usually end up destroying ourselves. And that this time around, we have much better chance at making it through without destroying ourselves. And so that's the cyclical spiral nature that may be going on. Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. Um, one is I remember some Vedic story where some master was talking to a disciple or something, and there was a line of ants walking along the ground, and the master pointed to them and said, at one stage, all those ants were Lord Shiva. So in other words, they had gone cycled around, and now they're, now they're ants. So I don't know about that. It's just a story. But another thought I have as you're saying that is that what happens to the whole culture, the whole society, and then what happens to individual beings? Maybe it's that individual beings cycle back around and have to go through the whole thing again, but maybe there is an ascending trajectory that just continues on, and eventually we don't even get born on Earth as a human being anymore because we're living in higher realms. But nonetheless, the cycle of yugas continues and various cycles Earth goes through. 
One thing Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to say is that it, it takes a long time for what he called natural law to descend and descend and descend. And eventually when it reaches its nadir, it shoots back up to 100% in one generation in a short amount of time. So that's hopeful. There are some who say that that golden age is right around the corner. Yeah. But others say, no, it'll take us a little time to get there. So, I mean, I must say, I feel I'm so close to this. Maybe I have to take my own vision on it with a, a big grain of salt. But the reality is, I do believe in the last decade or two, we've made tremendous progress along these lines. I believe that humanity is truly headed for a golden age of transformation and understanding that will in many ways be a complete and wonderful resolution of all the human conflicts and confusion of the last five to seven, eight millennia. I believe we're headed for a true inflection point uh, that will be just astonishing. And I believe it has to do with the fact that this is all about the scientific study of consciousness and the nature of reality that goes far beyond the simplistic, conventional materialist science and physicalist science, because you, you cannot explain consciousness, you know, the hard problem of consciousness that was defined by David Chalmers in the mid-90s is a very deep challenge to materialism. In fact, it's probably a fatal challenge to materialism. You cannot explain consciousness totally within this physical realm. We really must have a broader vision of it all. And that's where I think the scientific contribution is going to make this revolution be something truly phenomenal from the viewpoint of human destiny over many, many millennia. I agree. I think it's a very exciting time to be alive, and uh, there are various scenarios on how it might play out. And if you don't have the full picture of what's going on with the spiritual renaissance that's taking place, you could become very pessimistic. I know people who have moved to Australia in order to just sort of live out the rest of our lives before everybody on earth dies. But I somehow think that God has a few tricks up his sleeve and that uh, this spiritual epidemic, which seems to be welling up, is the perfect and essential antidote to what ails us and that it, it may just save the day in ways that we can't fully elaborate yet. Well, I would just share with your thoughts on that. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of optimism too. about this. I know that people, especially in our polarized society with a COVID challenge, the economic collapse, the racial disparity in our country that's kind of been bundled with all that conflict. From my point of view, when you're getting close to an inflection point where you have true change, that's where, that's where the chaos, the fundamentalists that had so much invested in the old worldview rise up and recoil with outrage, kind of pounding their chest. It's kind of like a healing crisis. But where, it is a healing, a healing where, crisis. Right, where someone, an individual, is going through a health challenge, and sometimes the treatment makes you feel a little bit worse before you feel better. Yeah. It's kind of like the fever yeah. breaking and a bad in infection. You know, you have that night where you're in cold sweats and a hot fever, and then the next day you're done. Yeah. Or that collective gift of desperation. It's a yeah, yeah, Karen and I often talk about kind of the parallels with the uh, addiction and the whole world of addiction and alcoholism, all that. There's this notion of the gift of desperation. If you hit a low enough bottom, that actually energizes your bounce and your incredible recovery and ascendance. And in many ways, we're facing a collective gift of desperation. And that's what I think COVID and a lot of the economic challenge is related to, is the fact that these fundamentalists of the old era 
are kind of rising up and recoiling because it really is time for them to go. Their usefulness not to go to join to us. transform <laughs> and resolve yeah. and come to resolution. I should say not go, but we're all of this together, and they serve a role. I would say that the true skeptics serve a role. I'm not so sure about the the pseudo skeptics, uh, you know, out there in the kind of lay press and some in the scientific community who don't really care about the empirical data or the hypothetical models that support all this. They've made up their mind already. But the rest of us into the world at large, I think that there's a tremendous amount of reason for optimism that we're finally really learning this deep and profound lesson that we're all in this together. We need to take care of each other. It's all about kindness, compassion, love, forgiveness, gratitude. These are the qualities of our spiritual selves that help us to grow into the grander beings that we all truly are. And these qualities you're speaking of, I think of as very feminine qualities and our world, our materialist world is very much filled with masculine quantities, sort of what we can see, all the action, what we can do, all the focus on the external world. And uh, the feminine is more about going within the inner world, the more sensitive part of us. And I love how the women leaders of countries during the COVID crisis, the women who really have these embody these feminine characteristics have done a really beautiful job of taking Mm -hmm. care of their citizens. It's not men and women necessarily, but those qualities that all of us really need to find balance. Yeah, I saw a graphic of seven or eight countries that have women leaders and their COVID statistics in comparison to a bunch of countries, comparable countries that have male leaders. Jacinta Aldern or whatever her name is in New Zealand and other ones that much better outcome. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and when they did their lockdowns, they actually made every effort to be sure and certain that everyone was cared for, that yeah. they weren't at risk. And that's, that's a, the world I want to live yeah, in. Yeah, that's the kind of world where that feminine energy is doing a lot of healthy work to help uh, transform and grow all of us together. You know, I think there's no question when I look back on human history, especially the last few centuries, what I see is, you know, homo sapiens. Sapiens means wise. Well, yeah, we've had a lot of beautiful developments in science about medicine and communications and transportation. I mean, science has really benefited us in many ways. And yet there's that dark underbelly. For example, our addiction to fossil fuels, climate change, more than 35,000 species threatened with immediate extinction because of our irresponsibility as a species for the planet at large. And I would say a lot of that comes from a false sense of separation that is inherent in that materialist model of who we are and the nature of reality, whereas a more quantum-informed version that acknowledges this oneness of mind and consciousness that we all seem to share as revealed through NDEs and and that manner of understanding of, of the nature of reality That's where we can really grow with this to a much uh, uh, deeper level, is that kind of understanding. And it really is all being fostered through the science of consciousness, and yet individual seekers can come to know that in meditation and centering prayer, just through living their lives and the way they deal with people, that deeper understanding of how we're really here to care for each other and take care of all fellow beings. And, of course, it's not just about the consciousness of humans, because that one mind involves animals, plants, that one mind involves all of life forms. And it really is becoming apparent to us that if we want to consider ourselves homo sapiens, 
wise, we really need to do a much better job of serving as stewards for the world and for each other. And that involves tremendously this notion of the oneness of all, that we're in a shared existence. Yeah. And it reminds me of that quote from Jesus, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. If we're in that unity consciousness, then we realize that whatever we harm or help, we're harming or helping ourselves because it is ourself, really, literally. Exactly. Speaking of the pandemic, and, and you mentioned this earlier about the importance of science and thinking scientifically, as you know, there's a lot of confusion around the pandemic and the vaccines and everything else. And uh, there are people who seem to have significant credentials saying things that conflict with other people who seem to have significant, you know, imp impressive credentials. I've given this a lot of thought and paid it a lot of attention because I don't care if somebody thinks the earth is flat or we didn't land on the moon. Those are sort of amusing perspectives. But I do care if people are saying things that end up killing hundreds of thousands of people unnecessarily. Somehow clarity of thinking, discernment, discrimination, respecting science, and not just going by your own individual perspective to the exclusion of the shared perspective of the whole scientific community, seem like very important things, more important than ever at this moment. Do you have any thoughts about that? Discernment is certainly a very crucial uh, ingredient to any of our dealings with the world, and that certainly includes the spiritual realm and our encounters there. We need discernment. Karen has taught me a lot about that whole process. But in terms of the vaccine and in terms of modern science, I think people need to remember that science basically has self-corrective mechanisms built into it to help nudge it towards truth, nudge it towards the real answer. And you're right, there are people out there who claim to have certain credentials. The reality is, in our modern era, unfortunately, you have to use your discernment again, because just having those credentials is not necessarily enough. But for me, for example, Dr. Fauci, everything he has said about this virus and the vaccine and everything about it, going all the way back to the beginning, has been right on the mark. And there's never been any kind of reason to doubt it. Now, some people bring up the fact that early in the pandemic, experts were not recommending masks, and then they moved to recommending masks. But a huge part of that was that there weren't enough masks for the medical profession. And there wasn't enough data. And there wasn't enough data as, yet. As the data comes in, the as science As the data comes shifts. in, the science improves, the science kind of bends towards the truth. In our modern society, it's really a shame how some people very publicly doubt the science and challenge the science. And just because somebody is a scientist, that's enough to kind of put them on the chopping block in some but, people's views. But also, you've also spoken, because we've discussed this quite a lot because of all these varying viewpoints, but we've also discussed how the science community, occasionally there is disagreement, or not occasionally, there right. is disagreement. And then what you find is the consensus. What right. do most of the scientists believe? And it's because the scientific method has a lot to be said for it. And so when you see science being followed in these discussions, of the virus and the vaccine, what you find is that over time, month after month, we get closer and closer to what appears to be the actual answer and the actual truth.
Eben has actually read, because I'm not a scientist, I don't know some of the language that's used in some of these papers that are circulating around. He comes in so handy because when I'm ever concerned about scientific claim, I ask Eben, and he is so broadly informed about science that he's able to tell me, well, here's where they made their step in logic that I wouldn't agree with. And once they make that step in logic, then he can't really follow what the rest of them are saying. And one of the papers that is out there circulating, Eben looked at it, and that was one of the cases that the logic that that scientist was using, Eben didn't agree with. And so it just comes down to that. And I agree with you, Rick. I think this is terribly damaging because it does have such an effect on other people. It's not just a choice we're making for ourselves. It's a choice we're making for our whole community. That's how viruses work. Everyone seemed to be on board You know, when polio was killing all of the children and paralyzing them, and I don't recall any concern back then, except that people got the shots and polio went away. Well, it's very unfortunate when our political leaders end up sacrificing science on the altar of public opinion, because science ultimately is our best way of getting to all of these answers. And of course, when I say that, I'm not saying materialist science or physicalist science, I'm looking at science at large, the whole process of scientific investigation, which uh, just as an an example we mentioned a little while ago about the psychedelic plant medicines shutting the brain down. I mean, where does a scientist go who wants to get to deep answers when all you're demonstrating is that your brain is uh, going dark under the influence of these substances that create the most phenomenally rich experiences that many people have ever had? So we need to reach beyond materialism and and physicalism for our answers. But that doesn't mean we have to reject science at all. I would consider all of those past life memories in children studied by the UVA group in many ways to have been scientifically and philosophically validated and studied. Remember that book, The The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn? I, I love that book. One point he makes is that there's sort of a value to the fact that paradigms don't just flip with the slightest provocation. In other words, there needs to be a sort of certain stability, almost a resistance to change, because otherwise we'd have total chaos where every little bit of information that came, oh, that must be wrong. We we wouldn't have any edifice or foundation upon which to build our structures of knowledge. But the point he makes is that with enough anomalies, with enough things contradicting the established paradigm, they eventually topple. The reason I'm bringing this up is that it's good to understand how science works and to understand that science can be wrong about things, but it eventually self-corrects as time goes on. And I think it'll self-correct with regard to all the more esoteric topics we've been discussing today. But with regard to the, the pandemic and all, it's a learning process, you know? I mean, it's a novel virus and a lot is being learned as we go along. But to just throw out blatant disinformation is, it's dishonest and irresponsible. I mean, I've, I know a few people who say a vaccine didn't cure smallpox. It was just a coincidental improvement in public hygiene that cured smallpox. It bugs me, you know, because people are dying and that's real. And if you talk to people who are working in ICUs who have to watch them die, I wish everyone could have that experience. I think there'd be a lot less bullshit flying around. Right. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that. And what people need to remember is that a kind of self-corrective mechanism built into the scientific method 
and the scientific community. I mean, scientific community is made of human beings. They have the same frailties and wishes and wants and desires and foibles as, as any human being. And yet the community at large and the techniques that science uses are something that can help lead us towards truth. And in fact, I'm very frightened by the notion that some people believe that anti-science is the answer for something like the COVID pandemic. We've had 560,000 Americans die in a little over a year. Three million worldwide, uh, you know, I just heard. Three million worldwide. But then you have the naysayers who say those are made-up numbers. And, of course, we know people who've died. Well, in fact, when you look at excess deaths, what you find is those numbers are probably an undercall of the true ravages of the COVID pandemic. It's probably been much worse than the official numbers because of the number of deaths. Now, some of those, of course, would be people who were having a heart attack, who didn't go to the hospital because of COVID and died because of that. But I think even more of those numbers would be explained by the fact that COVID is more extensive and out there than we've come to recognize. Yeah. Okay. Now the questions are starting to come in. First question from Danette in Sacramento. Do you still have conscious contact with your sister? Yes. Beautiful question. And that's something we discuss a lot in Living in a Mindful Universe. I use meditation, sacred acoustics, binaural beat brainwave entrainment, an hour or two a day. I've been doing that for more than a decade now. So it's really about going within, developing a much richer relationship with all the denizens of that realm. And that includes, of course, my birth sister, who I'm now very close to because of ongoing meditation, gotten to know her much better, and many other facets. My father's soul now engaging after meditation, etc. But yes, and it all depends on my use of meditation to return to the realm. Yeah. So just to highlight a point you just made, when you do the binaural beats, which you say you've done a couple hours a day for years now, you very often go into very deep states that approximate your near-death experience where you're in transcendental realms and you're meeting subtle beings and all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, I would say it's my work with Karen, who's never had an NDE, and also with all of her uh, people who use sacred acoustics around the world. And there are many, many of those people. And they're kind of sharing with us of their experiences. That's what leads me to know that the meditation is an equally valid pathway to getting to this knowledge as a profound NDE. Now, I've not yet experienced the full-blown ultra-reality that I sensed in the Gateway Valley and in the core realm. But it could be that I have to wait till the next time that my brain is pretty much completely (laughs) offline for that to happen. But through meditation, I've come very close and developed a very rich relationship with my NDE realm. Yeah. Well, let's hope your brain doesn't go completely offline anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Because that wasn't a picnic. No. But it was a blessing. One curiosity I have, which you might be able to speak to, is, um, you know, I've interviewed Chris Bache a couple of times who had some very deep psychedelic experiences, and he was always listening to music during them, like Beethoven or whatever. He had this whole playlist, and he would lie there and listen to music. And I don't know if I quite asked him, why not just lie there in silence, maybe even with noise-canceling headphones? Why do you want some kind of music going on? Do you have a thought to that? That's a natural question from a TM teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's interesting, I have people who practice TM and they have been told by their teachers that they cannot use sound while they're practicing their TM. But the sound actually, for me, the binaural beats in particular, offer an opportunity to help quiet the mind. 
a little more quickly than just standard silent meditation, especially for those who are just starting out. And I think Christopher Bache also used hemisync, another yeah. form of binaural beats. Yeah. He so, describes it. Yeah, but all different kinds of music can help people get into those states. But I know you probably want to. Yeah, in fact, in his book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, Christopher Bache uh, talks very specifically, does a head to head comparison of his work with high dose LSD for spiritual investigation with his use of hemisync, binaural beat brainwave entrainment that I would say is kind of a more primitive version than, than what I would view sacred acoustics. But just that's just my opinion. And, of course, the sacred acoustics is a more modern version of all that. But Christopher Bates said that you could use the sound and get as far, if not farther, than you could with the high-dose LSD. I mean, he was very respectful. And when you think about it, that makes sense because, in essence, the uh, serotonin drugs like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, things like that, are really kind of having an effect through parts of the neocortex. That's where most of those receptors are. And that's a very superficial connection of the brain to consciousness. And what I would say is the binaural beats, by going after this target way down in the lower brainstem, they're going as a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago. And I believe that's one of the reasons why binaural beat brainwave entrainment can take you so, so far in separating from our everyday consciousness of self and that false sense of here and now and help us to escape that. So, so binaural beat brainwave entrainment by going at consciousness at this primitive level in the lower brainstem can be uh, extraordinarily powerful. You may have intrigued some listeners. So anyone who's curious can go to sacredacoustics.com, look for the free download link, and we'll send you a 20-minute recording. And also look for... The Whole Mind Bundle. This is a collection of recordings that we reduced drastically in price at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And there's also a free option for those in financial uncertainty. We thought that was incredibly important because these recordings were actually used in a pilot study that showed a 26% reduction in anxiety. And so many people who have anxiety, just by listening to these recordings, you can help to reduce and calm yourself into a calmer state. And that, of course, for some people helps to take them into deep states of meditation. But others, all they need is that anxiety reduction. And so we accept anyone who can't afford to pay because even if you cannot, you have our gratitude for taking time to quiet the mind simply because we know we are all in this together. And each person who does that contributes to our well-being. I'll be uh, linking to that website and to your other websites on your page on batgap.com. I just want to add that I, I listened to that free download one last two days in the afternoon and had a nice effect. I really enjoyed it. I'd like to listen to some more. It can be very relaxing. And uh, we would invite people to really explore sacredacoustics.com. Karen has put a lot of work into some free training videos and other things that help people with all the tools and kind of practical techniques to help them get up to speed on all this. Yeah. I know for a year before I had learned to meditate, I had a lot of deep experiences under the influence of various chemicals um, of, while listening to music. And I, in a way, I think that contributed to the fact that when I finally did learn to meditate, it was like, boom, falling off a log. You had that right. practice and that familiar, reference familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, more questions. Here we go. This one is from Jay in Victoria, would be British Columbia. Could you please elaborate how a person would choose their parents? I had parents that were abusive, and I was wondering what the point would be to choose abusive parents? Good question. 
That's a very good question. And, uh, you know, a lot of what Michael Newton, who Rick brought up, talks about is that we do make choices about how we're going to live our life that's upcoming before we incarnate into a body. And so those choices are based on particular lessons we want to learn, particular things we feel we're lacking. And I'll just give you one very brief example. This was actually an example from Paul Arand, another Life Between Lives regressionist. He was regressing a woman who had incredibly low self-esteem and she was unattractive, had a big nose and was overweight. And in her Life Between Lives, she ran into her deceased uncle and she didn't like her uncle because her uncle teased her all the time. And what she learned was that she wanted her uncle to treat her that way because in her previous lifetime, when she was going through her life review, she was an incredibly beautiful woman who looked down on others who weren't attractive. And she was actually rude to them. And when she realized that what she had done, she wanted to experience that from another perspective. She wanted to be on the receiving end of that. Yeah. And some of these issues, like why you would have chosen your parents to have that abusive experience, sometimes we don't necessarily have those ready answers. Rob Schwartz, who wrote a book called Your Soul's Plan, does a beautiful job of uh, explaining why we might have made those choices. You got to remember, it's not our ego that made the choice. It's our higher soul and kind of soul group that made the choice. From a much broader perspective. A much broader perspective of seeing multiple lifetimes and of realizing a growth, a transformative pathway forward. Uh, And that's where people really run into trouble. And that's where meditation can be so handy. Because in meditation, you can put that little voice in your head, your ego mind, the annoying roommate, as uh, Michael Singer calls it. You can put that into time out and start exploring your relationship as that neutral observer connected to that primordial mind with a higher sense of purpose and growth. Good. Next question from Matthew in Indonesia. Do you think that within the next few decades, the materialists will be able to explain how NDEs happen? If there is a biological marker, will that establish causation rather than correlation? Well, I would say materialists are in fact going extinct because they don't have any answers relevant to consciousness. So they but won't find a biological... No, you, you're not going to find some biological molecular trigger that makes all this happen. Again, you have to look at the giant picture. Don't they call that studies. promissory materialism? Promissory materialism. Yeah. That's what Sir John Eccles called it. He was a Nobel laureate back in the mid-20th century. And he thought it was ridiculous that materialists would promise that someday all the extremely... Uh, fascinating spiritual features of human existence would someday be reduced to the movement of particles and uh, atoms and molecules in a physicalist model. And I'd, I'd say that the trend in modern neuroscience, especially over the last few decades, has been away from materialism. Materialism is kind of the low hanging fruit, you know, what we can measure in the lab and all that. And yet in explaining it all, just like those fMRI cases that show that psilocybin makes the brain go dark, not get active anyway, but the entire brain, there's no region in it that has increased activity under the influence of psilocybin. So we need bigger explanations, and they're not going to be uh, from the world of materialism. Which is not to say that all this research on the neurophysiological correlates of meditation and higher states and all that is not a valuable thing. I mean, that's great. It just doesn't explain everything about it. It just gives you some indication of what's going on in the brain when you have that. 
with NDEs and OBEs, it would be a little harder to study that because they're hard, it's harder to predict when those are going to happen. <laughs> than it, well, it is, but you can do things like target where the body is going in an out-of-body experiment. You can measure photons at the target site. There are many ways to scientifically take this to the next level. Yeah. Okay. Here's one from Felix. I don't know where Felix is located, but um, the question is, how do we know we're aligned with what we came here to do? And what tips can you give us to stay on track or read the signs to stay more aligned? Lots of good questions. Yeah. So this is, I know you're wanting us to ask, answer quickly. No, yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> so we, we have about one, two, three, four, five, six left. And we don't have okay. to end we'll exactly at two hours. We can go a little long. So okay. just you know, do so, justice to them. Yeah. So I think what you're asking about is being aligned with your purpose. We all seem to feel as though we came here for a purpose. And people who have NDEs come back sometimes knowing their purpose, sometimes not knowing, but knowing that they have one. So it's good that you've asked. So the way that you would know that you were aligned is how's your life going? Are you happy? Do you have what you wish to have? Are things when you set projects in motion, or do they come about very easily? Or do you have a lot of roadblocks? Do you have resistance to something that continues to come to you over and over again? Sometimes what you resist is what you really need to dive into. So there's lots of ways to, to kind of understand this. It's hard to explain. It would be easier to explain if I knew more about this person's situation. But one way that I personally have felt as though I am fulfilling my purpose is that I used to have a lot of anxiety around what is my purpose? What should I be doing? What activities will I do to perform my purpose? What I eventually realized is that I could just generate this feeling within that I was living my purpose. And as I started to generate, I am living my purpose, I'm living my purpose, and just really feeling as if that was the case, the external world around me completely changed. And I found myself in a completely different life that I never could have imagined. And while I was living my purpose previous to my life completely changing, all of that was necessary to get me to where I am now. Now I definitely feel like I'm in the flow of my purpose. And so just kind of aligning yourself, having a personal practice, really going in to know yourself is really the biggest key. I would say the value of meditation and centering prayer cannot be overstated in this discussion. It's important spend at least some time on a frequent basis kind of going within and being with yourself in that kind of silence and meditative mode. Uh, I believe that that's been tremendously helpful to me in coming to kind of live my life purpose since my NDE. Yeah, no, when you have a spiritual practice and you're spiritually growing like that, it really lines your ducks up in a relative sense in terms of all the circumstances of your life. Yeah, I often say that if you want to make a change in the outer world, pay attention to your inner world, and that's when you'll start to make progress. Yeah, yeah I heard Swami Sarva Priyananda talking about this just last night. He was talking about what they call swadharma, which means your dharma, your purpose, that course of action, which is really what you're cut out to do. And there are so many different variables and stages of life and all kinds of considerations. It's a little bit hard to work it all out intellectually, but if you kind of get in the flow of God's will, we could put it, you end up serving your purpose quite nicely. I've spent many years where I was doing stuff that had no ultimate profundity for me, you know, 
I was a computer consultant. I was crawling around under people's desks, you know, pulling out wires and stuff. Even after I've been meditating for decades and yeah, had to earn some money. So, okay, it wasn't something I thought I would be doing all my life. And I, and it wasn't. Sometimes you just have to be patient and do what needs to be done. Yeah. It's more about how you are being rather than how you are doing. Yeah. It's another way to look at it. Yeah. But of course, Ultimately, the beautiful lessons of this kind of discussion and sharing of these profound spiritual experiences like NDEs inform all of us how to live our lives better day to day. It's not just about what happens when I die, but far more important in this discussion is how do I make my choices and live this life day after day after day to reflect my greater knowledge and wisdom. So it's not just about meditating and centering prayer, but it's about living that life that you discover as you come into more alignment with your higher soul. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all else should be added unto thee. Right. Okay, here's a question from Ravi in Sharjah, which I guess is in India. Ravi says, I too am a neurosurgeon and can only imagine how your NDE must have changed your life. For those of us who are not fortunate to have had your experience, can you help us understand and reconcile these two dimensions? I suppose he means the worldly dimension with the sort of spiritual subtle world, spiritual dimension. Well, it's to realize that first and foremost, we are spiritual beings in a spiritual universe. And I think this gets back at what Karen was talking about earlier, where she talked about the three planes of spiritual, mental, and physical. I would simply argue that modern uh, kind of physics and study of the physical world is showing us very clearly that there's a top-down causality involved. It's not all bottom-up. That's where some quantum physicists get confused. They think it's understanding you know, electrons, quarks, protons, atoms, molecules, all doing their dance according to the laws of physics, chemistry, and in our case, biology, and that that gives you all the answers. Well, in fact, no, the answers come from a deeper understanding of a top-down set of causal principles. This is something that's perfectly at home in the kind of quantum physics world, this notion of the mental layer of reality. And we're simply taking that to the next level in terms of being a scientist and trying to understand the modern version of kind of the overlap of the spiritual and the physical is to remember it's all ultimately kind of that spiritual mental universe giving this top-down causal impetus to all the events that we see emerging in the physical world. We get in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we talk a lot about how those relationships work. There are, I would especially recommend for the scientific mind, the works from Ed Kelly, Irreducible Mind, his book in 2007, Beyond Physicalism, his book from 2015, and the most recent book that just came out a month or two ago from Ed Kelly and the UVA Dobbs Group called Consciousness Unbound. And those three volumes together are a very deep scientific philosophical dive into the modern evidence showing the reality of what we're speaking of here. And I would highly recommend those for the kind of scientific crowd that wants to go deeper. Sounds like I should check out this Ed Kelly guy. Yeah, you should check out Ed Kelly. Yeah. Ed Kelly knows what he's talking about. He's the lead editor of those three books. But he likes to be under the radar. He's, yeah, he's under yeah, the radar. Okay. It's kind of hard to find Ed, but he is, in many ways, he's the magician behind the scenes for a lot of this work. Cool. He maybe will come out from behind that curtain. He so. might, but I was one of the, the main endorsers for his newest book, A Consciousness Unbound. And I will tell you that book goes light years towards uh, taking the whole scientific community on this pathway. Great. Next question from Omkar. What happens to the individual consciousness when one is 
under anesthesia and when one is in deep sleep? Well, that's a beautiful question, but uh, I would say that it is often in realms that are, you know, not this physical realm. Karen can talk about uh, oh, sort of ancient notions of our souls some, every night. Yeah, some people will say that, and I know people where this actually, they actually remember this happening, where every night when we go to sleep, apparently our energy leaves our body and interacts in the spiritual realm, but we don't always remember. And of course, sometimes that's where some dream fragments come from, some would say. But we're doing this every single night. And Sometimes people, when they have that sleep paralysis, that some people theorize that your energy hasn't come quite back into the body yet after having left it. But yeah, it is a mystery, though, with anesthesia. Well, what I would say to that is you got to remember that the time clock of Earth time is a supporting element that supports the fiction of each and every one of our sentient being kind of incarnations and living in this physical world. But it is not an ultimate arbiter of the flow of time from the higher perspective of our consciousness in those realms. And if I would say the life review is a perfect example of how time flow, when you realize in a life review that very major events can be represented to you in such detail that it rivals even the kind of detail and information content of when you lived through it the first time in the material realm in this life, you start to realize that this earth time is not the ultimate arbiter of the existence of consciousness and of its transformation. I will tell you, I just remembered there's a, a woman called Michelle Small Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, and she's written some books. She has a, a nature conservatory called Paralandra here in Virginia, and she actually has written books that talk about how every night when she goes to sleep, she is in another realm interacting with other people. And she never has a sleeping moment because she always maintains her awareness in one realm or the other. Fascinating read. Very fascinating. And she's, she seems credible. Yeah. I have a friend named Harry Alto, whom I've interviewed on this show three times, and he said he hasn't slept in about 60 years. So same thing. His body sleeps. He probably, yeah. probably snores, but he never loses pure awareness. Right. Yeah. Yep, most of us don't remember. Yeah. And that's all. entering that realm of no time right. when our soul is in that dreamland. Uh, uh, and likewise, I would say during anesthesia, our kind of soul and conscious awareness is in, in a very different uh, aspect. It's not in four-dimensional space-time, but it's certainly out in that realm of more primordial consciousness. Some under anesthesia do maintain awareness. Yeah, they see the uh, the surgeons from the perspective of the ceiling, or they see a red sneaker yeah. on the roof of the hospital or something like that. Right. Well, certainly that stuff happens in the setting of an NDE. Right. So, And I would say an NDE kind of resets what is possible, just like terminal lucidity that often happens to a patient who might have been demented for months or years, comatose, what have you. But the phenomenon often witnessed in a hospice or in, in a dying setting is that the soul can come back and reanimate, take over that body again, even in spite of the fact that doctors, you know, physicalists, materialist doctors would say there's no way. Yeah, because the, the brain happen. is so and yet deteriorated. It often yeah. in the hospice world, you know, that the soul comes back in and manifests and has this beautiful access to memory. And often at a time when they're witnessing souls of departed loved ones, like my mother who passed over two years ago, she was deeply unresponsive for four days straight. But at 2.30 in the morning on the second of those days, she woke up and was 
totally convinced her own mother was there in her presence. And she wanted to call all her children, get the nurse in here, call my children, tell them my mother's here. And to me, when I heard that, I knew, okay, she's getting very close. That's an authentic sign that she's really very close to leaving this world when she had a very real connection. And I'm not just saying that she thought it was real. It was real. Her mother was actually there. That's the uh, sine qua non of those experiences to tell us of their reality. Another quick question from Omkar. Why do NDEs happen to only some people? Well, it's a great question, and I suspect it has to do with memory. And that uh, if you look at the numbers, it's somewhere between 18 and 20 percent of people who say, for example, have a cardiac arrest and are clinically dead for a period of time. Roughly one in five of them will have something that qualifies as a near-death experience. And I would say that uh, the other cases are incomplete or kind of a failure of memory to recall it. But also Paul Arant, the hypnotherapist I mentioned earlier, he has been regressing people who had cardiac arrest with no memory of anything happening, he's regressing them back to that moment and finding that they are able to retrieve some memories. So I think you're right. Right. And also, it's certainly a common story that sometimes people who have an NDE, say in midlife, will remember the events of an NDE when they were a child where they didn't remember any of the NDE events after that first NDE. So in other words, the second NDE kind of restirs their memory of events that happened that, for whatever reason, they didn't bring back to this world after the first mm. interview. I have a weird thing sometimes. This happens once in a while. I'll remember some dream I had 40 years ago. I hadn't remembered it the next morning, but all of a sudden, ooh, yeah, that dream. No. It's kind of cool. That's because of the richness of that realm of the one mind, of our higher soul. Yeah. And we have access to all manner of kind of information important to us. Okay, here's one from Matt in Vermont. Program forgetting of our real nature as spirit, of our eternal being, past lives, etc., seems to serve an important purpose, that life lessons are more meaningful when we aren't aware of the true context of human life. But it seems that the veil of program forgetting is thinning. Is the increased seeing through the veil an intended new phase of the program? Is the program changing? I would say absolutely. That's part of this awakening we're talking about. The veil is thinning globally. More and more people are coming out and sharing these experiences. They're being put out in the literature, put out in videos, put out for all the world to embrace, assemble, learn from. And I do believe the veil is very much thinning. You have to kind of wonder how is the system even set up in the first place that we're not supposed to remember our dreams or remember past life and between life memories beyond age five or six. And I believe that the questioner here has hit the nail on the head. In many ways, that serves a purpose of giving a skin in the game and some buy-in to these lives. And in many ways, NDEs have kind of short-circuited that whole process because up until the late 1960s, most cardiac arrest patients went on to die. Since we developed uh, resuscitation techniques in the late 60s, we now have millions of people who have been to the other side and come back to share the tale. And that, I believe, is an intentional part of the awakening that's happening. And in terms of the the veil thinning, the theory of the yuga cycles would say that's actually very expected right now because we're in the energy age where we start to really 
identify with ourselves as energy. And of course, that's what's happening in science since the electron was discovered back in the 1800s. And so we're rapidly moving into that energy age. We're actually right in it, according to the yugas. And that is exactly what should happen is mm-hmm. the veil should start to thin. Yeah. So Another sense in which I think the veil is thinning, which is actually related to the name of this program, Buddha at the Gas Pump, is that I think maybe a long time ago, a couple thousand years ago, it kind of took a Superman like the Buddha to break through the, it wasn't even a veil, it was like a thick curtain (laughs) that was blocking enlightenment. But these days it's thin so much, perhaps because of the efforts of people like the Buddha, or perhaps because, like you say, the cycles of time, the yugas, that the the veil is quite diaphanous now, and lots of people are having spiritual awakenings. So you may encounter a Buddha at the gas pump. Yeah, and the lesson is, what do you do with that information? And they talk about this in the yugas, how we end up destroying ourselves because we're not using that power for good. And so this power to interact with the energy created the nuclear bomb. And what have we done since then? We've avoided them. And so if we can keep doing that and, you know, use this power only for good, I would say, then we'll go a lot further. I think that's one of the deepest lessons is through that binding force of love that is so apparent to virtually all near-death experiencers and other spiritual journeyers who have been that deep. Um, That power of love is a very important feature, and it's what I believe we've been challenged to learn for thousands of years, and yet humanity has not taken that lesson of, of, of love and the infinite healing power of love to heart. And that's why the scientific revolution is so important, because by bringing science and spirituality back together, we'll begin to refocus on that kind of prime directive of, of love and kindness and compassion uh, and forgiveness uh, dominating our world. Here, here. Um, okay, next question from Nicole in Kansas City. You mentioned dogs jumping in the place you went during your NDE. Did you see any animals you personally knew from your life? I ask this because I consider I, pets just as close as human family members. I did not, and, and I, I can tell you, though, that... It's because I, you had amnesia. I had amnesia. Yeah. That's an important piece. Even though it's an atypical feature, you don't usually find that in NDEs, I've come to realize in the months and years since my coma that the amnesia was very important for some of the deepest lessons that, that I, I gleaned from the experience. But that amnesia prevented me from having such recognitions. But I will tell you that Paul Arant, that one of the cases I'm recalling that he regressed a, a cardiac arrest patient to a near-death experience, this man, this uh, Canadian big hunter type guy, encountered his hunting dog who had died. And just put him into, you know, tears and It was really kind of a funny story because every time his heart would stop, he's there in the spiritual world reuniting with his beloved pet. And then the doctors would resuscitate him and he'd come back and he's like, no, I don't want to be here. I want to be with my dog. (laughs) So It's funny. But yes, all evidence points towards pets being there. Yeah, it's one of the biggest myths of 20th century science that animals don't have a rich spiritual existence. And I think uh, that's a huge lesson that needs to come from this scientific revolution about the nature of consciousness is we need to treat all animals with that respect because they are spiritual beings too. They share in this one mind experience that we're in. Yeah. I saw a sweet cartoon the other day. It was like the gates of heaven, St. Peter's standing there. And then there was a dog and a cat sitting outside the gate and they're kind of looking off in the other direction. And St. Peter's like, you know, come on in. And they said, no, we're waiting for someone. 
<laughs> Bear sweat. Hey. That's right. Yeah. We hope we'll see copper on the copper. Yeah, we, ours are <laughs> sleeping on the floor here. Yeah, so it's this one. <laughs> He's like, oh, what did you do? You got him up for the <laughs> Okay, here comes another question. This one is from Raj Kumar in Delhi. Please ask Eben about his profound encounter with God, or Om, as he puts it, and the wisdom that can be shared from that encounter. Well, I would say what I've come to realize is that infinitely loving and healing force of love of God, it doesn't matter if you want to call it God or Brahman or Allah, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit, all those names are misleading because there's really a one unifying force of love and connection, of kindness, compassion, acceptance right at the core of this universe that I would say is the very source of our conscious awareness. It's kind of a complete redefining of the nature of God and consciousness that in many ways emerged from my journey. But it showed me that the apparent darkness and evil in this world is really just the lack of the light and love of that infinitely healing power of that God force. Any of us can recover that force of love. And another important corollary to this is there's not an actual opposing spiritual force of darkness or evil. Those are just the absence of that light and love. That's why unconditional love has such infinite power to heal all wounds and to heal this world. And why did you call that deity Om? I called that deity Om because that was the sound that was so deeply uh, memorable from that core version of the experience. The core realm, as I call it, was dominated by this. uh, For one thing, I had the higher dimensional multiverse there collapsed down into these eternal Overspheres are the lessons I was to learn, but that was in the midst of this infinite dimensional infinity and eternity that gave me that resonant sound of awe. That's what I called that deity when I came back to this world, and it has nothing to do with any kind of religious uh, predisposition. It just is the the natural groundwork of my journey and of my realization of the personal linkage of that infinitely loving God force. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to consider that we don't have dark bulbs that emit dark. We have light bulbs. If <laughs> right. we have a dark room, no matter how long it's been dark, as soon as you turn on a light bulb, you're adding a second element, uh, so to speak, and the darkness is dispelled. That's right. a great analogy. Beautiful analogy. Really I great. love that. <laughs> That's what it's all about. So that spiritual realm has an infinite supply of love and light, and any of us can serve to bring that into our own lives and to this world at large. This is from another Ravi, Ravi Dadlani. As a physician, how has your understanding of disease changed after your NDE? Do you still believe in the germ theory as an etiology for infectious disease? What's your take on the karma theory of disease? Well, I would say there's a much more along the lines of the karma notion. And in my own life and looking back on it, for example, there are several things where at the time I might have thought I was going through a real hardship. For example, in 1991, my family and I came to a decision that I needed to stop drinking alcohol. I never had any trouble at work, but on my nights off, I tended to rely too heavily on a drink. So I stopped. I look back on the gift of that, not being that I stopped drinking alcohol, but the gift was that I was born alcoholic in the first place because that gave me a stage setting and a certain set of hardships that actually enabled me to grow. Likewise, my meningoencephalitis in 2008, a week in coma due to a disease that should have killed me, was a tremendous gift. And of course, many people would say, well, it's a gift because you came back. Well, yeah, that's very true, because 
when you look at near-death experiences with this kind of healing, you realize that um, miraculous, extraordinary, unexpected healing is within the realm of human potential when we have this overlap with our spiritual self. So it's kind of a deeper knowing of connected with the universe and a sense of purpose. In fact, uh, there's a book by a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Norman Naeem, N-A-E-E-M, called Healing from the Inside Out. He's a pulmonologist, intensivist, so he spent all his time working with extremely sick people in ICUs. And his book is a beautiful example of how illness can actually lead your soul into tremendous growth that really could be accomplished any other way. So these hardships can be tremendous gifts when looked at in the proper way. And I've come to fully believe that in many ways, our higher souls and soul groups do select the challenges and hardships in life. And in many ways, those are the true mileposts and indicators of a pathway forward. It's how we deal with those hardships and challenges. Are we able to recover a sense of love and purpose with the universe in the midst of these challenges? And that's where I believe we can really grow and come to see the hardships as gifts. And in many ways, that's altered the way I look at uh, kind of disease and illness and injury and all of that is to look more at kind of the gift nature of these challenges. Yeah, and I don't think everything you just said would contradict germ theory. Germ theory is still valid. Germ yeah. theory is still very valid, but they're just like, you know, those fMRIs of people on psilocybin. It's not going to give you all the answers. Right. You need to dig deeper. Yeah. That's why I love uh, Anna Usum, who we work with. She's a psychiatrist who wrote that uh, pilot study looking at sacred acoustics and relief of anxiety. But she wrote a beautiful book called Fulfilled, and it's about a spiritual approach to psychiatry that I think is incredibly valuable in the current era to help people kind of come into alignment with who they truly are, with this higher soul notion of self, with a very optimistic way of looking at the hardships and challenges in life as opportunities for growth and transformation. Yeah. Well, the reason I said that is that, you know, these days there's some people walking around who say things like, oh, I don't need to wear a mask. I don't need to social distance. I don't need to do this or that. I just have a strong immune system. I believe in myself and, you know, stuff like that. What about not infecting others if you're an asymptomatic carrier? Yeah, That's what puts the mask on that me. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Did you ever see that graphic about... If everybody walked around naked, this is a little gross, but if everybody walked around naked and some guy peed on you, you'd get wet. Now, if you had pants on and he peed on you, you'd get less wet. But if he had pants on, you on, you wouldn't get wet at all. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's an example of why wearing a mask works. <laughs> well, for the mask issue, I would say, you know, we drive on the right side of the road. And we all kind of accept that that keeps us safer than if we just drive on any side of the road we want to drive on. I would say mask wearing is like driving on the right side of the road. Or seatbelts. It's just good public health. And just yeah. do it. It's not a political thing. Yeah. And it's just protect each other. Right. And we don't say that not being allowed to drive 90 miles an hour on the highway is a restriction of my freedom. But if I were the only car on the highway, yeah. then maybe I could do that. But obviously there are other people involved. Exactly. Good point. <laughs> All right. I don't know if that's kind of a weird note to end on. We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. We have. You've done an excellent job, Rick. Well, you've done all the work. Uh, I've just asked a few questions. <laughs> you've asked uh, excellent questions, and you've kind of steered it in a beautiful direction. It takes a good interviewer to yeah. make a good interview. Yeah, we do a lot of these, so we recognize when somebody is uh, 
an expert. And, and, you were and, definitely and Rick, I just want to thank you. I've heard of your program for many years, and uh, I just want to thank you for doing all of this. And now I've learned a little bit more about you. People like you are critical to helping the world awaken and to move forward. And bringing all of the varied voices that you bring to your program is uh, just so inspiring and helpful. So thanks for all that you do. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And thank you. I mean, you, you must experience when people say, oh, thank you so much. You, you must feel like, am I really doing anything? I mean, I'm just doing what I love and it's not even me yeah. doing it. And it's just, you know, so it's almost inappropriate to accept thanks. <laughs> You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is an authentic kind of heartfelt way of, of living life, helping others, helping the world to wake up. And to me, it just goes far beyond what I could ever do as a doctor trying to help individual patients as a neurosurgeon. I feel like I'm, I'm able to help more in this particular fashion. So yeah. I'm doing what I, I love to do. That's great. And you seem to be the same. Yeah, sometimes I feel like people who have NDEs, it was almost a setup, you know, it's like, we're going to give this guy an NDE, we're going to send him back, and then he's going to be an emissary for, you know, what he's going to learn. <laughs> That's what a lot of NDEers end up saying, Anita Morjani being one of them, yeah. and Mary Neal, especially, I don't know if you know Mary Neal's case, an orthopedic surgeon, but she was told, you're going to come back and share this with people, and she really didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> she still doesn't want to, but, but she's she does doing it. She does it beautifully. Beautiful That's job. great. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, thank you to those who have been listening or watching. Sorry, we had a little glitch with our question form. We'll figure out what the problem with that was. And there are many more scheduled. If you look at the upcoming interviews page, you'll see what we've got coming up. And we usually schedule two or three months in advance and just keep pushing it forward. This is our 12th season now of doing this. And I oh. hope to at least do another 12. I don't know how Irene feels about that's, that. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, keep it up. You're yes. doing a great job. Yeah. And for people who want to kind of stay in touch with us on a reasonable basis beyond EvanAlexander.com and SacredAcoustics.com, I would suggest our biweekly webinar that Karen and I have been doing for more than a year right. now, interviewing guests. And you can access that at UnitedInHopeAndHealing.com. Okay. Um, send me a link and it's to all that. Free. Well, we'll send yeah, you Yeah, because I don't think I have that on my list of things to link to. So. Send me a link to that, right. and I'll Good. put that on the show notes. And <clears throat> All right, Rick. Thanks so much. Thank we really you so appreciate much. It. Okay, thank you, and we'll, hopefully we'll run into each other in person one All of right. these days. Yes. We love it. All Sounds right, thanks a lot. All right, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.